You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Good evening, my name is Rick Kleffel, and I host a show on NPR affiliate KUSP called The Agony Column, and I also have a podcast called The Agony Column, which you can find, not surprisingly, at agonycolumn.com. <laughs> With us this evening, we have one of the premier literary creators of Features in 3D. We are on the third novel in a series, and this is a man who defines three dimensions in the way that really matter. Character, character, story. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Hello, good evening. Thank you for calling. This thing about the 3D that Rick says, it's, uh, Rick, I think, grew up in the LA area. Uh, but he now lives up there in San Francisco. You know how they do drugs up there like crazy. So this is where all this stuff comes from. Carlos, I'd like you to begin this evening by reading just this opening paragraph from your new book, which I think really captures the charm of your writing. Sure. Well, bear with me. I'm a terrible reader. That's why I'm a writer. I don't read. I write. This is the very first paragraph that you'll find in The Prisoner of Heaven. I have always known that one day I would return to these streets to tell the story of the man who lost his soul and his name among the shadows of a Barcelona trapped in a time of ashes and silence. These are pages written in the flames of the city of the damned, words etching fire on the memory of the one who returned from among the dead with a promise nailed to his heart and a curse upon his head. The curtain rises. The audience falls silent, and before the shadow lingering over their destiny descends upon the set, a chorus of pure souls takes the stage with a comet in their hands and the blessed innocence of those who, believing the third act to be the last, wish to spin a Christmas story, and aware that once the last page is turned, the poison of its words will drag them slowly but inexorably towards the heart of darkness. Julian Carax, The Prisoner of Heaven, Editions de la Lumière, Paris, 1992. Carlos, one of the things that I love about your books is their Escher-esque quality. There are books within books. The, each book leads like an endless staircase into the next. And I'd like you to talk about creating that kind of infinite sense of story within a limited sense of space because you managed to, to evoke for us more stories than we can even kind of glean within each book. And then as the books go on, the stories multiply uh, exponentially. Well, hopefully that won't give the readers a headache. I hope so. <laughs> and uh, the, the idea, I think, that this, this complex uh, kind of labyrinth-like structure comes from, from the very concept of 
and, and that, that lies behind is the books of the cemetery of forgotten books. When I started working on Shadow of the Wind, my idea was to create some kind of Chinese box of fictions, kind of a, a labyrinth made of stories of tales of different novels that could provide different doors of entry into the same story. Ideally, you could read any of those books uh, in any order. You could read the first, the second, the third, the fourth. You could read one of them. If we just read one of them, it would be a self-contained, standalone story. But if you read more of these books in any order, your experience as a reader, your, your journey into this world would be altered, would be changed. And this was the idea behind the whole thing. I thought that the, uh, the most clear first point of entry would be the story of Shadow of the Wind, which was the first one to be written and published. But after that, always hope that readers may take their own journey because this labyrinth of stories is designed to be continuously rearranging itself. So every time you read one of the new books, probably you're going to reinterpret in your mind what you read before. You're going to see the other books in a different light. You'll realize that what you thought was what, it's not anymore, that it's different, that the story is taking you in different directions. And this is, this is meant to be uh, working until the end of the series with the fourth book in which even though if you have read the three of books and maybe at the end of The Prisoner of Heaven you finally get the sense that I know now what is going on in here, I know what the game is all about, there are many more twists and surprises that are going to come and the story will be continuously rearranging itself until the end where everything will click. Your stories have such memorable characters and their voices are so memorable and I'd like you to talk about immersing yourself in these different voices for these very, very different books. Each of these books might be by a different author, and in fact, they actually, in your fictional universe, they are. This probably means I have multiple personalities. <laughs> there are hints at that, actually. When you look at my handwriting, you'll realize that I write the same letter in 15 different ways, which probably is a sign of a serious mental disturbance or something, <laughs> which may translate in all these different characters. Well, I think one of the most important elements in any piece of fiction, of course, is character, and I think that uh, novels or a strong novel is always based on character. That's the most important element, much more so than plot or any other things. Uh, therefore, I try to work very hard in creating all these different characters that even though, of course, they all come from the same place, from the factory in my brain, I try not to look, have them all look and sound and act the same for the purpose of, of enriching the drama. So this is something that I'm that I'm very aware of and that I try to work hard, especially using some of the devices that a writer and novelist has, using dialogue to, to characterize characters, trying to, 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 to provide the reader with vehicle, or what I call vessel characters that allow you to shift your, your point of view in which you are able to experience different things and you're more or less kind of find things in the character. And, and this is something that I always try to do, that provide things or hints or or have kind of the, the, the characters rigged in a way that they will prompt a reflection of the reader into the character. So the minute uh, you find something of yourself into the character, you make that character part of yourself, and I think that's when it comes alive. And this gets to a, a major theme of The Prisoner of Heaven, which is the idea of identity and how we construct our identities. We're a narrative species. We're made up of stories. If I ask you, who are you, Carlos Rizafon, what are you going to tell me but a story? 
Yeah, essentially we define ourselves by stories. We are only able to understand, absorb those things that can be constructed in a narrative sequence. Even evolutionary psychology uh, teaches us that the human brain works in sequences, works in narration, story terms. So it may be in different languages, in the language of science, of math, of music, of words, but essentially anything that we can express or understand or internalize comes through a sequence of events, of codes and symbols. This is how we define ourselves, this is how we live, and this is how we do everything. So I think it's interesting to take this into account when you're building stories for people, because the very architecture of the story is based on the way we think. So I think it's interesting to play around with this, with this, with, with, with the way that the brain of the reader is, 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 is receiving all these messages, all these codes, and be aware of the mechanisms in there to play around with that. Essentially, when you're writing novels, you're fooling around in people's minds. It's like you're getting into their homes, and you rearrange the furniture, and you change their clothes, and you go into the refrigerator and drink their beer, and things like that. And then in the morning, they say, well, wait a minute, what happened? You know, a novelist was here. You know, it wasn't your home, it was in your brain while you thought you were just reading. You were talking about uh, schizophrenia. Well, here we go. <laughs> you're, you're inducing it into the readers, I guess. And I think that's an interesting way of looking at the, the reading experience to uh, turn your readers' lives into somebody else, give them another life to live within their own minds. Well, I think that's part of what fiction is. Fiction allows us, I think, to live more and to live better. And we live many different lives. We live lives that we may have lift, but maybe the present circumstances in our lives prevent us from experiencing these things, but they are somehow inside of us. The potential for all these things is inside of us. Fiction, I think, frees our minds and allows us first to, to understand ourselves better, to understand the world better, and then to live through this, to live through our minds and to experience things and to understand many things, and ultimately to, to, to journey into ourselves, into our own mind, to get to know what really is down there. As one of the characters, and I think it's in Shadow of the Wind says, you know, a book is, is like a mirror. You will only find in it what, you already, what is already inside of you. I think that's what a good novel does. It provides a bridge into your own heart, into your own mind, and, and shows you things that are there, and you were not even aware of that. You know, these three novels in this sequence so far are written, it seems, almost by three different writers. There's the grand sweeping romantic of The Shadow of the Wind, and that would be you wearing your uh, Julian Carac's hat. And then there's the dark, gothic labyrinth of doom and despair of the angels' game. There's a kind of a contra a counterintuitive title, and then there's the joy and sweetness of the prisoner of heaven. Talk about uh, just evoking the different, using the architectures of these books, the very architecture and the technology of literature to explore these three very different visions of essentially the same thing. Well, uh, one explanation would be that I use ghost writers. And then, of course, each different book feels differently because these are real really, ghosts, right? They're, they they are, live in your house. You and they're real ghosts because afterwards I kill them, so they cannot tell. So they become really ghost writers in the most exact sense of the word. And uh, 
one of, I think one of the things that come, when I, when I was thinking about these novels of the Cemetery of Forgotten Books, I thought that what would be really cool if it would be if each, each one of these books, even though they're closely related and they're part of the same story, uh, since they're kind of standalone, had, had its own personality. And that personality was going to be defined by what I call the resident writer in each book. There's the novelist inside the novel. In the case of Shadow of the Wind, uh, what I always saw this is essentially we are reading a book about a book, which by the end of the book becomes the book we've been reading about, which sounds very strange, but it's more or less what it is. We're back I've, to M.C. Escher again. There we go. You know, it's trying to cause a headache for the fine audience we have tonight here. And, um, and I thought that The Shadow of the Wind uh, had to feel like a book by Julian Carax, which is this novelist, this cursed novelist that we are hearing about and that it's somehow inside the, the heart of the story. And then I felt that in the case of the Angels game, the tone had to be different because this was the story of this man, David Martin, who's essentially is a man who's losing his sanity. He's falling into the abyss of his own madness and he's trying to record his life on paper before it disappears. And of course, he's the most unreliable narrators of all unreliable narrators because essentially it's a man losing completely his mind and we are following him down into this hell of his own man. But I felt that since he's a writer of this kind of over-the-top Grand Guignol Victorian Gothic serials, that that's exactly how the book should feel, that we were reading one of his stories and essentially we were reading the story of his life. Now, I have to ask you, when you were writing The Angel's Game, did you yourself kind of have to plunge? Did you start to feel yourself that you were an, you were an unreliable narrator? Well, I always think that I'm completely unreliable, and I doubt my own sanity, so I, I have no trouble getting into, into, the, into the mind of David Martin or these kind of characters, because, you know, if they're crazy, I'm too, you know, they're part of my mind, they're part of my world, so. Uh, but but the, 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 the trick is to take the right medication. <laughs> and, and, and it does wonders, you know. You, with the right medication, you kind of stop there at the edge and you're able to look into the abyss, but the abyss can't look into you because you have the candy pills. Uh, so, and, and, and in the case, I think, um, of, of, of Prisoner of Heaven, I think uh, the, the resident boys is the boys of Fermin, Fermin Romero de Torres, which is this character we met in Shadow of the Wing, which is kind of a picaresque character. And in this case, of course, Fermin is not a writer, he's not a novelist, but his personality, his own flamboyant way of expressing through humoresque or his, his sarcasm and his way of looking at life kind of inflects the whole text, the whole tone that therefore making the novel much more in contrast, for instance, with the Angels game, a much more luminous, fun, quick, lightweight piece, rather than the Angels game, which feels kind of a dark and baroque and twisted and kind of a very, very dense. So I try to do that and try to inhabit that voice when I'm working on the book, because I'm very aware that the tone that inflects each one of this of these books is, is one of the most important things in trying to find the balance in all the elements in there. So I try to, to incorporate all these different chips into my mind. And all of these people are a part of me, so it's not that complicated. Now, uh, this book, the new book, uh, one of the core themes of this book is identity and how we build our identities and who we are. And one of the things that's interesting that I was thinking about today was that just as your books 
are like the Nautilus chambers where there's books within books within books. Your characters, and in fact, all of us, probably everybody here, there are different versions of us that we let out. And in this book, the different characters let out different versions of themselves, sometimes to their despair. And I'd like you to talk about that kind of psychological understanding uh, that you bring to the book, and also just the, the core theme of who, who the heck are we? Well, this, I think, this is one of the main themes or issues in, in, in these books. And I think it comes from, from a notion that always intrigued me. I always thought that, you know, we are who we are. We are a present version of ourselves. But there are many potential versions of who we are. You know, we get into this planet, we land here, nobody asks us if we want to come here. Probably if they did and provide some literature and information, we'll say, you know, I'll take a pass. But they just drop us here. And, and, and you get some cards to play with. Some of these cards are good, some suck. Some, usually we get a mixture. And, and depending on how we play these cards, depending on what are our choices, mostly moral choices, we become a version of ourselves or a different thing, and we become the person we are. And this is something that intrigues me enormously in how we become the people we are and, and why. And this is something that I've been trying to explore in these stories in trying to see how all these characters have evolved through their lives. How, how could they have turned out being somebody else? Uh, but they just turn on. And in the case of, of, of Prisoner of Heaven, this is very, very important because what we find in Fermin Romero de Torres is a character that if we take into account everything that life has given him on a plate, uh, chances are he could have turned out a very different character. But this is a man who strives to be a decent person. This is a man who tries a better person. This is a man who sacrifices for other people, who has a good heart when the world, and, or, or when, when, when doing all of those things may seem suicidal and extravagant at best. So I, I'm very intriguing. And, and one, of the, one of the stories about uh, Prisoner of Heaven is how Fermin Romero Torres became the man he is. Where's he coming from? What is the true story of his life? How he became uh, Danielle's protector and f best friend? This was not by coincidence. If we just read the Shadow of the Wind, we get this impression that it's a chance encounter. It was not a chance encounter. Nothing happens by chance in this story. So there are many things. And one of the things is this huge secret that, that Fermin has been keeping from Danielle and from us. For, for a very long time, and this secret is kind of killing him. And now at the beginning of the story, a mysterious character comes out of the past and actually formalizes this thread that is kind of literally killing Fermin into a real one. This could really kill him, and they need to face this, and, and Fermin needs to reveal this terrible secret, which is what is going to lead us into the very heart of the story of the Cemetery of Forgotten Books. You know, one of the things that I love so much about these books is that they, even though they don't give us the, uh, we don't have monsters or really ghosts, they have all the appeal of the fiction that deals with that, but stay in a kind of a real world that's very familiar to us, but you give us all the thrills of that kind of fiction, which is a really difficult thing to pull off, and thank you for doing it. Well, you're very welcome, part of my job. And uh, I think it comes because this comes from something you were alluding earlier that, that I didn't really answer, which is um, 
one of the things I wanted to do with these books was to create stories that in many ways, since they're an homage to literature, to writing, to reading, to the world of books, that could combine in the one book or in the one series of books all possible genres, that could combine all possible techniques, devices, all the tricks in the book and more, combine into the one thing as an homage to all these things and as an exercise, as a way of trying to engage the reader in all of these things. We, there are nothing but the weapons of literature. Sometimes we tend to, to, to establish divisions or say, you know, from here, from here, there's a crime novel, and this is a fantasy novel, and this is a social novel, and this is a historical novel, and this is a comedy, this is a love story, this is a, a ghost story. And all of these divisions, all of these separations are purely mm, arbitrary. They, they, they don't really have any sense. Uh, literature uh, goes from, from, from one side to the other. It's about all of these things. So what I'm trying to do is incorporate all these things and incorporate especially all of the things we have learned about storytelling through the 20th century. What I'm trying to do is take the traditional or the classic model of the 19th century uh, great novels of Dickens and all this, or Alexander Dumas and all these people, deconstruct that model and rebuild it using what you were referring to, which is what I call the technology of storytelling. We tend to think of technology as something that applies to our cell phones and computers and gizmos and to our cars and these things that we push buttons. But technology essentially can be applied to many things. And we have learned so much about the art and science of telling stories through the 20th century. When we think, for instance, in the, 20th, in the 19th century, the readers of Dickens, the readers of Dickens had never seen a movie, a comic book, a photography, uh, a commercial, had never been submitted to the world of cinema, to many, many different things. Nowadays, everybody who's in this room for probably most of their lives have been submitted to a number from, from all, all, all possible genres of literature to television, to movies, to advertising, to graphic design, to, to, to enormous, an enormous amount of narrative codes and symbols and sequences of ways, essentially things that are nothing but ways to tell stories that use words and sounds and images to communicate things. And we've been working at these things for the 20th century from modernist fiction to the movies, to Japanese anime, to animation, to advertising, to comic books, to all kinds of genre fiction, to all sorts of experiments. And we have been toiling at that and finding out what works, what doesn't work. And essentially at this point, what we have is an extremely sophisticated audience that is not even aware of this sophistication. I think modern readers don't realize that they're able to decode all these different messages instantly, subconsciously, without even having to, to, to bother about it. You know, when you talk about technology, that's really interesting because I can tell you that I use all sorts of technology. I have no idea how it works. But uh, with regards to literary technology, we all have it, as you say, it's hard-coded into us. We totally understand it. You show us a movie code or something and it's right there. Yeah, but we don't even know how it works. I mm -hmm. think people don't really, most people don't, maybe now we are in the Los Angeles area and some of our friends here are very versed in the art of, of, of film, but essentially most people don't know what movies work, how a sequence is put together, how that thing works. The, you, just, you don't need to know. You don't need to know anything about music to enjoy a piece of music and for that piece of music to affect you. You don't need to know about harmony, counterpoint, uh, orchestration or any of that stuff, you just 
hear it and it moves you, it affects you. I think in the same way this happens with literature. Uh, the reader doesn't necessarily, the fact that the technical construction of a piece is very complex doesn't need to translate into something that is hard to read. On the contrary, the most advanced technology, you know, when we get our iPhones, which is put into this thing, nobody's really even beginning to understand how it can pick our boys when we were talking, I think we were talking about this the other day, about the very extremely complex technology, how the microphone on the iPhone picks our boys. When the microphone is here, we are speaking in this direction, and it's not picking any of the other crap and, 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 and the universe and say, how is that possible? We, we never stop to think about that. But just that tiny detail, there's so much work and so much technology after that, or all these things that we use every day, we don't understand how they work. We don't understand how our computers work. You, you drive a BMW, you, you don't have no idea how it works. It just feels fine and it's very expensive. Period. So I think that when it comes to, to, to fiction, to be a fiction in movies or in TV series or in literature and many other things, you don't need necessarily to be aware of the technical construction of it, but you are able to absorb it and to internalize without any barrier. Now, as a writer, have you internalized this, or is there some technology you are using to build these stories? I mean, do you have your own version of the cemetery of forgotten books, but they're the cemetery of books I have to write before my publisher comes at me with a knife for the next deadline? No, I'm very careful, and I don't allow publishers to come after me with knives or any other <laughs> cutting objects. I learned this lesson a long time ago, so essentially I never agreed to, to deadlines or things like that. I write something, when it's done, it's done, and then I hand it to, to agents and publishers not a minute before. So nobody can force me say, hey, we have a contract here. You said you were going to deliver this. I don't do that. I don't, I don't sign contracts in advance. And I always stay away from, from cutting objects in the hands of publishers <laughs> and other nice people. You know, it's, it's publishers like bankers are very nice but should be held at a, <laughs> at a, at a safe distance. Uh, do you use like a spreadsheet? I mean, this is a very complicated universe you've created here. It's the city of Barcelona filled with people and it's filled with stories and these stories have these very complicated relationships. How do you keep track of all this stuff? Does it just live up in the back well, of your mind? Well, I, I use my brain. I think we all heard about how supposedly we human beings are only using 10% of our brains. So I said, you know, what the hell I'm doing with the other 90%? I guess I'm, I'm storing a lot of useless information because sometimes I remember things that what I'm remembering this crap for. So I think that part of that 90% is reduced and probably uh, there's maybe 70% out there that, you know, since it's up there, you're carrying around between your ears. We better find out ways of trying to, to extract some profit from it. So, so what I try to do is keep it all in my head because I think it's a good thing uh, if you're juggling all these many elements. If one of those things falls, to me it's because it had to fall. I always have this rule, whatever I cannot hold in my head doesn't belong in the books. If I need to have a lot of files or need a lot of things or things that I need to go to, to or very complicated outlines, it means that, that, that I need this kind of uh, crutch there too. And, and I try to say, you know, whatever I cannot hold in my head won't go into the books. So even though years may pass and I keep thinking about the stories and I keep changing things and I keep restructuring everything, I think it's a good rule 
for me at least. But doesn't mean that uh, it's the best way to do it. Probably people take a lot of notes, you know. It's uh, one of the things that I think strikes all of us about your books is how rich they are. When we read them, it's better than a movie. It's better than any kind of experience. And I think, too, and I, I'm looking at, at these people here, I hope all of us are reading these books as books because these are books written... The, the Cemetery of Forgotten Books isn't like a bunch of files on the server. It's real books. There's the, the cemetery of forgotten emails or forgotten <laughs> MP3s or something like that. Somehow it just doesn't sound very interesting. I think uh, um, one, one, of the, one of the reasons I think the, the books feel like this is because I try to incorporate many layers. I try to build them so that they work in different layers, that they may work in, in, in the layer of a traditional novel, but also that since we as an audience Nowadays, we can absorb all these audiovisual construct into a story and that can stimulate our parts of our brain that this is also there in the story that while you're reading, hopefully this piece of paper you're holding or maybe a piece of plastic in a case of a reader, if you're so poetically inclined, uh, that, that this thing disappears from your hands and that you're inside the story and that somehow the best film version of that story, it's being projected in the theater of your mind in the best possible cinematography and sound. And these plays that are in your mind at the same time that many other elements are, are, are playing around. So all, all of that is done in, in, the, in the hope that, that your reading experience is the most intense that I can provide, that is the most engaging and is the most rewarding experience. So, so this is one of the one of the levels that, that the books try to reach, to, to, to go beyond the, the mere text and try to incorporate all of these very sensorial, tactile experiences. So you feel that you've already lived this story in a, and also in a visual sense. Tell us a little bit about how we get these books. I mean, is this something that you do this 15 minutes a day and you're, you're good? Well, you get them, you go to Bromance, and then you find them there lying very nicely. Or, uh, well, uh, to me, writing is, is a job. It's my job, it's my profession, it's what I do for a living. So when I'm working on something, of course, I think writers are constantly thinking about things. But at some point, uh, and one of the things I realize is the, the older I get, the more time I devote to think about what I'm going to do and the less time I devote to execute it, because I think this is something that comes from experience. You already know what is gonna happen, you know where the traps are, so I think you're able to execute things much faster, but then you think much more about it. I think when you start writing, it tends to be the opposite. You tend to just try to figure out things right there on the page, on the paper, because you don't really know, and then you learn by your mistakes, and you learn things that eventually you're gonna use, so next time you do that, you already know how it works, how it's done. And when I'm working on something, I, I need to, I guess, as any, any other job, to establish a routine. So I work for many hours a day, I work every day in the beginning. Um, I may take one day off a week, if I'm very tired, or I'm kinda stuck, or I think that I'm, I need what, what Stephen King call the backroom boys to work something, which is when you get stuck into something and you know there's these backroom boys in the back of your mind that are gonna work on the story and they're gonna tell you, no, we, we figure it out. You know, it's like your, your computer guys department. And sometimes I may take two days off 
And the more I'm into the story, sometimes this, this, the, the working hours get longer. And then I start writing around the clock. And then I may take no extra days off until I'm finished. But essentially, I think it's, it's, it's a, you need to put a structure into that. And, and like building anything, like building an engine or a building or, or anything, it's a job first and foremost. And I think you need to approach it as such. Are there parts of these books that you know that you especially look forward to writing or parts that you kind of set aside as this is the scene and I, I cannot wait to get to write this scene? The ending, because then it means that I'm done and I can rest. Uh, it depends. I've seen there are some... You never really know until you get to these things because no matter how much you have planned and outlined and over-designed everything. It is when you get into the details of things that you find out about problems that you could not foresee. And then you need to figure them out right there. And, and they generate problems and they generate different solutions and new ideas that create ripple effects in all directions. And you need to go and rewrite everything, rechange everything over and over and over again. So you never really know. I think you don't... I think most writers say, and I agree with those that say that I don't necessarily enjoy writing, I enjoy having written. The sense that whatever I set out to do has been accomplished. When, when, I, when I get to that point, I say, you know, I was trying to do that, and I get a sense that, yes, I managed to do what I want. This gives me a good feeling. But while I'm there toiling, I don't I'm not necessarily having fun. Sometimes, because I think all writing is essentially a struggle against your own limitations. So everything the page is telling you is that you're an idiot, that you're not being able to solve and that you wanted to go from A to B to C. And then as soon as you get out of A, you go like, wait a minute, uh, what's the way? And then nobody tells you what you, you should be doing. And then you get lost and then you try to solve that. So you're struggling with these own limitations you have with the, the, the little amount of talent you have with your craft, with the things you know. And this sometimes gets mm, a little bit frustrating. So when eventually you manage to get to the other side or you delude yourself into thinking that you have gotten to the other side, that you have accomplished what you set out to do, you get a sense of relief of saying, okay. And, and then, yes, you feel good about it, usually. You know, and if you feel good about it, you throw it away and start again. Now, with these stories, the average series kind of starts at A and ends up at Z and goes through a kind of chronological order. These are not doing that. And I was just thinking that with these stories, you're kind of, with, with each book you write, you're kind of reducing the story space you have left to write because you're setting up so many uh, points of... Uh, I guess, contention, little plot points. It's like a spirograph. You've got all these uh, threads or, you know, like the, the kind of maps they have on the CSI where there's serial killers here and here and here and here. So uh, talk about just, you know, is, do, do you have a shrinking story space? I may have a shrinking brain uh, because I keep putting myself in, into this kind of... Uh, awkward and complicated situations. Why should I do that? You know, why should I be putting 
pushing myself against a corner, say, okay, how are you gonna get out of that? Okay, get deeper into the rabbit hole. Now how you get out of that? So that, I think this is in the nature of these books. And I think that the trick is that I know the general design of it. I think if I was improvising these things, if I didn't really know what I was doing, something, there's a kind of fiction in which writers are essentially readers of their own work. They keep writing and they don't really know where they're going. They try to figure out afterwards and they try to, 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 to give some shape to that. Or, but, but, but I need to know where I'm going, otherwise I would not be able to do what I'm doing. So even though it may seem that I'm pushing myself against a corner and that there's no way I can walk out of that, uh, I already know the way out to get out of that and hopefully I will get out. Either that or that's the end of me. Now, these books are a, a love letter to, to Barcelona, and kind of they, they have an architecture to them, too. So talk about exploring the city and exploring it, uh, the literature simultaneously. Well, in, in this book, Barcelona is more than, rather than a setting or, or, or a place, uh, one of the things I wanted to do, you know, Barcelona is a, is a city that has a very rich literary tradition. There's been many things written about it. it. It's been traditionally kind of the center of the publishing industry for the Spanish-speaking world for many, many years. So it has a, it's a very pretty, we could say, literary city in the sense that it's been in the center of, of, the, of the literary business for a long time. And because of that, and, and, and because it, it's my own city, it's where I come from, I'm a product of it. In many ways, Barcelona is my mother, like it or not, you know. And it I took me some time to be able to write about it or to find the right way for me to write about it. And, and what I decided to do was rather than trying to depict it as it is or as it may be, because it's, I guess there are as many cities or people who live or, or who know them. Each one of us has a different, uh, version or a different vision of the place we live in. But in this case, what I try to do with the city is to create a character based on it, a character that was heavily stylized and that hopefully would get to the essence of what the city is to me that goes beyond the more touristic or uh, the, the, this touristic impression that we may have of the last maybe 15, 20 years, but that doesn't go far beyond that. And I don't think the city is about all that stuff. I think the city is much more complex. And what I'm trying to do is take what I understand is the essence of the city and transform it into a character. And do with a character what you do with characters, which is that you write lines and scenes for them and you build costumes and sets and you move them around and you play around with them and you photograph them in a specific way, which it's not meant to, to, to offer a very realistic uh, portrayed of it, but a rather than a stylization. And the Barcelona of these books is a character. It's not a social portrait of the city. If you go to the city or if you know it and you read these books, you'll recognize the city and you'll find many things. And what I'm trying to do always be very respectful to the history and very true to the history, to the geography, and use as much as is there as possible. But always with this heavily stylized filter, which slightly alters it, but, but, but it allows it to remain as it is. Let's take some questions from the audience, if there are any. We have a few minutes here. Does anybody have any questions for Carlos Ruiz Safan? You, sir.
split your time difference you know, between Barcelona and Los Angeles. Why did you choose to do that? And is it easier to write about Barcelona when you're here or not? The question is, is it easier to write when, about Barcelona when he's here or in, in Los Angeles or in Barcelona? Carlos resides in both places. Carlos. Yeah, well, I split my life between two places which are extremely different. And uh, actually, this comes, uh, it's kind of an accident of life. Years ago, I lived in Los Angeles for a while, then I went back to live in Barcelona. And then what I realized is that I had got used to live here, and that part of my life was here, and I like it here. And somehow you say, well, you know, it's, well, you're in one place, you kind of miss the other place. And when you, and, and you realize that your life has been split into places, and you don't necessarily want to choose or renounce one or the other. One, Barcelona is where I'm coming from. These are my roots. And, and Los Angeles, California, it's a place that I chose and that, of course, is equally important for me. So I try to spend time in both of those places. And also I found that, to me at least, uh, it's easier to work here. I find myself to be much more productive when I'm in California. I cannot explain it. I've met people who from all over the world, all over the country, who end up in Los Angeles and do some kind of creative work who have the same uh, impression and they cannot explain it either. You know, there are people, I don't know, they may be from Paris and they say, when I'm in Paris, I cannot do anything. I'm going crazy. I come here and I get to work. Why? I don't know. It's the sunshine, the water, the pollution. <laughs> I don't really know, maybe, I don't know, it's, it's sitting in traffic for eight hours every day that gets the juices going, and then I need to create something or they'll find a skeleton here on the car or something. I don't know, but for some reason for me, so, so I'm very fond of, of California and the Los Angeles area, and to me it's a big part of my life, and I like to spend time here. And I also like to go back to Barcelona because it's where I'm coming from, and it's, it's, it's where all my childhood and my youth happened. Uh, but essentially, I try, if I can, uh, to work here rather than work in. Although some books I've written between both places, or but if I can, the more I can get done here, the better. And it takes a different vibe. I think what I write here is lighter. What I write in Barcelona is it's much darker. So I don't know where it comes from. I think the antenna picks that stuff in there. It's another kind of pollution. There's a gentleman in the back with a blue shirt. That's you. He's wondering how uh, closely you work with your translator for your books, and are there plans to translate your entire catalog? I, I work very closely with Lucia Graves, is my, my translator. We've always been working with her, and, and we work extremely close. In fact, we have a way of working which is kind of unusual and that comes from when we started working on Shadow of the Wind, in which what we do is that Lucia starts working on a first draft of the translation, on a rough first draft, and, and she consults with me as, she, as much as she wants what she's doing it, and as soon as there are a few pages, she sends them to me and I start reworking them. And I start making changes, rewriting things, adjusting things. I send that back to Lucia. She looks at that. She incorporates the things she thinks about. And we keep doing this kind of loop over and over and over until I get the sense that the text, as a, as, as a reader coming from English you're receiving, is exactly the same as the original. That you're not losing anything in terms of texture, of pacing, of rhythm, of a structure, of timbre, of color. 
And there are some instances in which there's something that cannot be translated. Quite often it has to do with elements of humor or context that I feel, even though they can be forced into English, they wouldn't work, they would fall flat on the page. In those instances, what I'll rather do is write something new from scratch that performs the, 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 the same function and write it in English. And, and, and so there are sometimes slight, tiny variations between the English versions and, and, and the Spanish original that come from that fact because I've made some changes. But essentially, uh, that's the way we work and, and it's extremely it's extremely close relationship because we work together in this. And yes, I think all of my books, I think there are only, all of my books are translated into English and there are two more that are pending publication. Uh, one is a young adult novel called which is going to be called in, in the US, The Watcher in the Shadows, which will come, I think, in the fall. And then there's another kind of hybrid, kind of young adult, or nobody knows what it is, called Marina, which will come mm, next year. But the rest of all my previous books, everything is, is available in English. Uh, you, sir. Why do you use a translator? Why do you use a translator? Wow, this is an energetic question. Well, I, I use a translator because I need to, because the books are translated into many languages, because they come in, in, in 45 languages around the world, and because even though I like to control as much as I can the translations, I'm lucky in having a very talented translator who does the hard work, and then I'm able to change or alter or rewrite those things that I feel are not perfectly tuned or are not exactly what I'm trying to do. But moreover, I don't want to write the same book twice. I've already written the book. What I want to make sure is that when you read it in English, you read the same book that I wrote in Spanish without an inch of variation. But I don't want to write it again. I already did that. I would rather write something new. And that's where translators come. A good translation, translation is invisible. People tend to mystify the process of translation and they think that translators rewrite fictions or that they rewrite novels. That, that is not a good translation. If somebody's rewriting a novel, they're not translating it. It's a different matter. A good translation is invisible. Let's see, you, sir. The question is, Carlos once said he always knows the ending of the novel before he starts it, and the uh, questioner wanted to know which direction Carlos wrote the novel in. Well, as he was saying, uh, I said one other thing, that, that, that I need to know the title of the story before I begin. I cannot begin a story if I don't know the title, because to me the title is very important. Hopefully a good title is a promise to you as a reader, and is something that would alter its meaning as you're reading. Before you start reading, it's a promise. While you're reading, it starts changing its sense. By the end of the story, hopefully the meaning of the title will be new to you. So I need to know that in advance because it's built it into the structure of the story. And the way I work is I need to know what the story is. I need to know where I'm going, what is gonna happen. And I need to know what the journey is and what the stops are. Otherwise I cannot advance into that. That said, because I know that the deeper I get into the story, the more complications is gonna appear. I always keep it open. I keep an open mind because I know that no matter how carefully I plan, how written in stone things may seem, 
I'll run right away into problems that make me realize that I was wrong, that I thought that this was the right turn in the story, that, there were, that, that I need to change. So I keep changing things. I think I need to be very prepared. I need to have a full blueprint in my mind of the building I'm going to build. But the sooner I start building, I realize that there are problems, changes. And therefore, I keep rewriting and rewriting sentences in circles. I may go back and forth. I may go 200 pages back, 200 pages ahead. And I keep rewriting everything to death and changing everything to death. I never work on a second draft because I keep rewriting everything all the time. So by the end, it's done. It's done. And, and you cannot push it one inch further because it would explode. Everything is so pushed to say, right now you cannot take just the one piece, this thing would collapse. But the way I do it is working in circles rather than going first and then analyzing, saying, you know, it didn't work, I'll change. This is the way for me, and more and more, this is the way I work. Ma'am, you. Questioner has read in both languages and wants to know if Carlos has to change the flavor of some of his phrasing from one to the other to make sure that they correspond. Well, I, I, as I said, uh, I rewrite and change and adjust until I get the sense that, that that very sentence is the exact as in the original. And sometimes I change a lot, sometimes I don't, sometimes things travel Easy. I think that traveling from Spanish into English is not as complicated as it seems. The problem is that the original language in Spanish is very pushed, is very forced. That's why you get this impression when you start thinking about it, saying, whoa, this is much more difficult to translate than it may seem, because I try to write in a way that it's not obstructive for, for the reader. I don't want people starting reading a paragraph and having to go back and say, I don't know what the hell was in here. Uh, hopefully, I want readers to flow through the text as if it were water. But the construction of that is complicated. And of course, this is what translators find, that when they start trying to dissemble this machine and try to assemble it again, there are a lot of problems. And yes, sometimes there are problems. And, and in some exceptions, what I do is I always say I would, I would write something new from scratch, something in English from scratch that to me performs the very same function as the original Spanish. But there are tiny little incidences. There's not that common. And sometimes it has to do with humor, with kind of double, double entendres or senses. Or sometimes there are elements of, of context that I feel, I don't know, a reference to a cartoon character from the 30s in Spain. I see, I don't know how many of my readers in English are aware with those things. They are not. So it would be, to me, kind of a stupid try to to force something that doesn't evoke the kind of reaction I was hoping for. And if I can find the equivalent of a character that the reader will know, and, and then I will change it. 
because to me it makes sense because I'm serving the story and the characters, not an historically accurate history of cartoons in the 30s. I don't care about that stuff. So, but these are tiny little details. And I think that even as I'm writing in, in, in Spanish, I'm so aware of how everything is gonna sound in English that I'm already translating in my mind that many of the structures are already there. And I know quite often when I'm working on something, I wonder how this will sound in English. And I already have it in my mind because it's, it's just, the, it's, I think it's a byproduct of spending time one place or the other that you start thinking in both languages. Sir, you. How do the present conditions in Spain affect your writing now? Well, luckily I'm in California. Uh, <laughs> actually, there's, uh, I wrote, I wrote this, this last book entirely in Los Angeles. So, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of the pressing. I think everything that happens in Spain, in here, everywhere in the world, I think writers are sponges. We tend to absorb many things and you metabolize these things and you end up using these things, these feelings, these emotions, these ideas. So, on the other hand, I'm using a different time period, and, and I'm not really writing about Spain. I'm trying to write stories that are universal. I'm using a specific stylization of a time and a place, but the books are not about that. I mean, you could know nothing about Spain or its history or about Barcelona, and read these books and understand them perfectly because they are not about that. They just use that, you know, in the same way I don't think you need, need to know anything about dwarves and orcs and dragons to, to read The Lord of the Rings. Say, I've never been to Middle-earth. I never... <laughs> don't worry, you're fine. You can read them. It's not about those things. These are elements. There are trappings of the story. And, and in that sense, how affects... The situation in Spain affects me in the sense that I'm extremely concerned about the country and about Europe and about what the hell is going on and how it's going to drag not just Spain and Europe but the rest of us all down the drain. And of course, it's a, it's it's a, it's a disturbing time, and and I'm very concerned about it. But I'm I can really claim that I'm trying to reflect that into my fiction because hopefully I'm trying to to write a story that's more universal and it's not refer. To, to, to the present moment in Spain. We have time for one more question. Um, you, ma'am. When you're in LA, where do you write? Where do you write? The other day a friend told me that he knew this guy who wrote novels on, a, on an iPhone. <laughs> and I thought, it's the end of the world. Well, <laughs> that's I know not somebody who wrote some good stuff on an iPhone. I don't know. I just uh, maybe that's terrific stuff. I need to read it. I'm I'm just being opinionated. But when I heard, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so to 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 address your question, uh, when I'm in Los Angeles, thank you. I think I need some water. A particle of smoke landed somewhere in my throat, which happens every once in a while. <coughs> okay, after this dramatic pause. And when, when I'm in Los Angeles, the same as when I'm in Barcelona, I need to, I, I work in my studio. 
I have an office studio, and, and I need to work in there. I'm unable to work in hotels, in cafes. I'm not a laptopper. When I go into a Starbucks, I see all these people writing screenplays on, on, on their computers. I say, I don't know about that. Maybe they're, they're getting work done. I don't know. Some people like the noise and the presence of other people to work, and it helps you, it motivates you. Uh, to me, it's distracting. Since I know myself, I, I need to be the opposite. I could never ride at a cafe or even at a place that is not my own, even if a very quiet hotel room, I cannot do it. Uh, or even at somebody else's home. So I have my own studio, my own office, which is surrounded by the things I like, and I close myself in there, and, and, and I ride there and stay there for hours. And it's filled with music, with books, with all the things I like in, in the world, and, and it's completely cut off from, from, from the universe. And this is the only way in which I can concentrate, because when I'm writing, I stand and I walk around and I talk to myself. I'm not there typing all the time. This is probably 1% of the time. Essentially, I'm walking around, I'm thinking, I'm, I'm whatever, I'm looking out of the window, I'm trying to find excuses not to work, something at which I'm extremely good at. And I also have a piano in my studio. I may sit at the piano and play the piano, anything except writing. And then at some point, I think of something. I go there, I sit, I write it, rewrite it, rewrite it, rewrite it, then I throw it away and start again. And so I need a space in which I can do all of those things, in which there are no noises, there's no nothing, there are no interruptions, and, 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 and I don't know any other way to work. And sometimes I'm envious when I see people who are getting work done in a public space or in a library. The writers who write entire books in libraries. See, I, I wish I could do that. I can't. Um, so I need that kind of little cave in which I hide to work. Well, you filled the library with fabulous books. I'm sorry, we'll, we'll have to, you'll have a little bit of time to talk to Carlos as he signs your books. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been fortunate enough to have Carlos Ruiz cell phone here this evening. And we have plenty of copies of his latest books and some of his other books. And I highly recommend you buy them all, read them once, read them twice, read them backwards in backwards order because it's a, it's a completely different experience. I mean, it's kind of mind boggling that he's it's able to do better this. better than chocolate. Thank you, thank you, thank you. There's a gentleman that disagrees. Well, chocolate is a different matter, I agree. And well, thank you for being here. I know you could have better things to do, like be watching, I don't know, Housewives of, of New Jersey, the real housewife, rather than being tonight here. So thank you for coming and happy readings. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.